Summer in Dallas means steamy temperatures, Rangers baseball, and off-season moves by our favorite winter franchises. On today's mic drop, we have it all. Temperatures may have reached triple digits here in Dallas, but Stars GM Jim Nell isn't sweating a critical off-season for the club. He'll outline his thoughts on the upcoming expansion draft and how to get the Stars back to the Stanley Cup final. Rangers legend and broadcaster Mark McLemore has no idea it's even hot outside, not with that beautiful new air-conditioned stadium that is Globe Life Field. While the Rangers have struggled a bit on the field, there are many positives for the club's future. Mark will tell us which player he thinks is the key to the future and why the second half of the season could set the tone for a more successful future. He also has a hot take on Major League Baseball's crackdown on pitchers using foreign substances that may surprise you. But first, the college football playoff, based right here in Irving, is looking to expand to 12 teams potentially. What does that mean for the Cotton Bowl in our local economy? Chuck Carlton from the Dallas Morning News joins us to discuss. So let's drop the needle and let's go. Welcome to the Mic Drop, everybody. Kevin Sullivan here, joined by my co-host, Monica Paul, the Executive Director of the Dallas Sports Commission, and our next level intern, Marcus Carr. Uh, Monica, this is episode 18. Spotify and Apple Podcasts have continued to upload us, so we're we're doing okay, Uh, along with other places you can find your pods. Uh, Episode 18, of course, makes me think of my Roman Gabriel LA Rams jersey that I had when I was a kid. He was number 18. Peyton Manning wore 18. Now, Marcus, Peyton Manning is the guy in the nationwide insurance commercials with Brad Paisley. You might (laughs) want to Google him. But our number 18 that we're going to dedicate the show to today is Stars forward Jason Dickinson for two reasons. It was cool that he gave number 16, which he had worn previously to Joe Pavelski when Joe was signed Uh, last offseason so that was a generous kind of team first typical hockey kind of move but also our producer Chris Amelia when she worked for the Stars Jason was one of if not her her favorite player because he was so easy to work with and agreeable and did a lot in the community and did media interviews and so episode 18 stars number 18 Jason Dickinson all around good guy also Monica last week we had the NASCAR all-star race take place at Texas Motor Speedway. Red hot Kyle Larson edged Brad Keselowski in a dramatic finish for the win. This was uh, a fitting end to the 25 year run of outgoing uh, Texas Motor Speedway president and GM. Uh, Eddie Eddie Gossage likes drama. Uh, He likes blowing stuff up. He's a fun guy and he he deserved a a dramatic finish to his last race. So we wish Eddie uh, the best of luck and hope to have him on a future episode of the mic drop. We're going to talk college football playoff expansion, which I know Monica is close to your heart with Chuck Carlton of the Dallas morning news in a minute, but the big mic drop moment this week in Dallas was Donnie Nelson and the Mavericks mutually agreeing to part ways. Monica, how do you think about Donnie's legacy after 24 years leading uh, basketball operations as, as president of basketball ops for the Mavs? Well, certainly I think uh, he has such an impact on Dallas as a whole, as, as a community. But from a Mavs standpoint, you know, playoffs uh, in the 17 of the last 21 years, three 60-win seasons, 
three conference finals, two NBA finals, our only uh, world championship in, in 2011. Obviously uh, responsible for uh, Dirk and, and Luca here and the legacy that they're bringing for, for the Mavericks and uh, just, uh, you know, other players in, in development as well. I, I don't think there's uh, any doubt uh, of the impact that Donnie Nelson has left on the Mavericks. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize the, uh, the other impact, the great community leader, ambassador, other sports, other development uh, that Donnie does here uh, for our community. He's a he's – a, um, I respect him a lot, and uh, he, he does a lot of great other things uh, in the sports world for us and has always been um, an advocate for the Sports Commission. So I look forward to uh, continuing to work with uh, Donnie in, in some capacity for sure. But, you know, you mentioned something, Sully, of uh, of Texas Motor Speedway and, and uh, finish lines and hot dramatic finishes. You know, with this being episode 18, you know, I think at some point we may need to get out to the Speedway and uh, – uh, you know, do a mic drop out there, or maybe you and I could race and uh, see who could uh, who could win. You know, I'm a little competitive, so yeah, I'd love to get out there. Maybe maybe go karts would be would be more my speed than okay. uh, than race cars, but yeah, that'd be a blast. Okay. I, I've been out there uh, a few times over the years. In fact, I saw the Rolling Stones there many years ago. Eddie was a a big idea guy, and I'm sure he still is. He's not retiring. He's got another another chapter left for sure in in his career. Uh, but he did an amazing j- job out there uh, in, in his in his long run. Uh, you know, getting back to Donnie, Monica, I, I, the impact that he had on international stars coming to the NBA goes way beyond, you know, Dirk and Luca. Uh, he he was involved with the Lithuanian uh, basketball movement early on. Brought Sharunas Marshalonis to the NBA, uh, you know, many years ago, who was a great player. Uh, there were other, you know, overseas players had come. Uh, Drazen Petrovic was another early one. And Donnie was sort of in the middle of that vision about having the NBA become more international. Our last three N- NBA most valuable players, Jokic this year and, and Giannis uh, Antetokounmpo, the last two years uh, prior to that. You know, so his, his imprint is lasting. He's a great guy. He's a special person, fun guy, entrepreneurial, you know, uh, mindset. Uh, and really creative, and we saw that and how he navigated to 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 get Luca in in the trade with Atlanta. And Tony Faye and I witnessed it firsthand prior to the 1998 draft when Donnie had clearly locked in early on a very young Dirk Nowitzki. He had seen him at a Nike International Basketball Showcase uh, kind of All Star Tournament thing in San Antonio, and he saw something in, in young, skinny, uh, unfinished Dirk Nowitzki. And, and of course, Dirk was coming into the 98 draft and typically before the draft, uh, we would bring uh, the media into uh, the Folsom room for the, the, you media veterans uh, listening, remember the Folsom room at Reunion Arena. And the media would line up in there sort of one at a time for, for one-on-one interviews with Donnie to, to, to anticipate the, the uh, talk about the upcoming draft. And, and Donnie got asked a lot of Dirk Nowitzki questions and he continued to, with a straight face, uh, look look at those reporters and say, yeah, you know, good player, but I don't know who he's going to guard in the NBA and skinny and kind of typical European, uh, you know, unfinished, uncertain. And he really convinced everybody we were not interested uh, and then put himself in position on draft night to make a move. We drafted uh, Robert Tractor Trailer, who has sadly passed away from Michigan, made a trade with the Bucks to bring Dirk to Dallas and the rest is championship history. So 
big fans of Donnie Nelson here at the at the mic drop, and uh, we wish him all the best. And I know he's got a lot of gas left in in his tank, just like uh, Eddie Gossage. Uh, so with that, Monica, let's uh, let's go to Rachel for uh, with a message from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Chuck Carlton of the Dallas Morning News to talk college football playoff expansion. Dallas is known for its big wins when it comes to sporting events. Whether it be Final Fours, Winter Classics, Pro Drafts, or even international soccer matches, Dallas sets the standard. And now it's time for our biggest win yet. We want the 2026 World Cup. The Dallas Sports Commission is working hard to bring the World Cup back to our great city, and we need your help. Head over to DallasWorldCup2026.com to sign the pledge to bring it back. Be sure to follow us on all social media at World Cup Dallas to stay up to date on all things 2026 World Cup. Thanks, Rach. Coming in hot today is Dallas Morning News college football insider Chuck Carlton. Chuck's been with the Morning News more than a decade. These days, he covers the Big 12 and Texas A&M uh, for the Morning News. Chuck, your Twitter bio says you're the world's oldest sophomore. What's, uh, what, what is that in reference to? Well, one, I am old. And two, I make a point never to, uh, to lose my sophomoric sense of humor and everything else that goes with being, uh, you know, 15 and 16. At least I've tried to. So, and well, you, tell you I've succeeded. Yes. Well, well, you're right at home here with the mic drop. We've been known for to, to be a, a little juvenile at times. Uh, so break it down for us, Chuck. What's what's the latest here now with the state of this uh, notion of expanding the college football playoff? Actually, it's, it's more than a notion. It's a proposal now. And when you consider the, the glacial pace that college football moves at, this is really extraordinary that we've reached this point, even if we don't actually have a playoff expansion until 2023. Where it stands right now is that after two years of working group of some pretty high-powered people, including the Big 12's Bob Bowlesby, Greg Sankey from the SEC, Notre Dame Athletic Director Jack Swarbrick, came up with to go, you know, never mind going from four to six or four to eight, but going four to 12. Uh, that's warp speed, you know, by, uh, you know, the power brokers who run college football didn't even want to use the word playoff back in 2008. Mike Slide, the late SEC commissioner, had to come up with the title of a plus one to try and sell a four-team playoff, and, you know, instead of actually calling it what it was. And, and now this is what we're looking at. Um, where it stands right now would be the, you know, the six highest-ranked uh, conference champions, six at-large teams, you would be playing, you know, the first round college campuses, quarterfinals and semifinals would be at the presumably the six bowls that currently comprise the rotation. Um, you know, we'll see if that stands, but that would be news for the Cotton Bowl National Championship game, probably mid to late January, maybe the week before the Super Bowl. And uh, where it stands, meetings in Chicago today and tomorrow where all the commissioners will get quote their first official look at it, but I'm sure they've all had this in their email on a PDF, everything else for, for a couple days now. And then next week in Dallas, the presidents who oversee the playoff, one from each conference, including SMU's Gerald Turner will, you know, look at it and then decide 
hey, do we want to have feedback going forward, open up a 90-day period, and you could have a decision to approve this in September. Now, the earliest this could happen is 2023 ESPN. The contract runs with ESPN until 2025. ESPN has a, a chance for exclusive negotiations beginning in 2023. And the question is, does ESPN take advantage of that, even when they still have a couple of years to go on the contract? But if you wait until 2025 and this turns into a hot property, are you bidding against not only Fox, but does say Amazon get involved? There's some of the other tech people who've made noises about getting involved in, uh, in college sports. All of a sudden, look at this. And all of a sudden, the dollar figures really start to escalate. You know, that'd be great for, you know, the uh, the college football playoff. Not so great for ESPN at that point. So there's still a lot of chess to be played. But the fact that, you know, they made the announcement, they held a conference call, that they're, you know, holding two meetings this week. This is, unless some stumbling block shows up, yeah, we're headed to 12 teams at some point in the future. And I just got way too windy. Oh, no, you were perfect, Chuck. I, I want to thank you for uh, uh, your contribution in covering uh, our, our events from NCAA Women's Final Four and Men's Final Four in the past and uh, everything that you do for our Big 12 championships when we've hosted it on before. But in terms of the, the college football playoff and this expansion, you mentioned the Cotton Bowl Classic and the, them being hopefully remaining one of those big six. Uh, but what could this mean for our area, and not only from a Cotton Bowl Classic standpoint, but do you see it having any effect on the other multiple bowl games that we host uh, here in the area? Great question. I mean, right now people are saying that maybe, uh, you know, some of those bowl games go away. I mean, there are 44 of them out there. Yep. But the, the good thing about the other bowl games in this area, they're tied into ESPN. ESPN loves the programming that they get. I mean, you know, you're going to say, well, it diminishes them right right now. Yeah, it does diminish them. But you look at a game like the, you know, nobody pays attention to the Carabole. But the Carabole last year with um, uh, Coastal Carolina and Liberty was one of the best bowl games, one of the best games of the college season. And people loved it. And, and that's what you get, you know, you, you have to, but before the quarterfinals show up and especially in that, you know, those weeks in December where you can't just show the Maui classic over and over again, you know, college basketball, football, college football still gets eye, uh, eyeballs. Uh, I think they'll be safe. Um, the other interesting thing would be that presumably, you know, if they stay with the, the bowls being in the quarterfinals, uh, part of this would be that the the four conference champions that receive a bye in the first round would be directed toward bowls that are closest to their geographic area. So uh, if you had a situation where Oklahoma wins the Big 12, you're going to see a lot of Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl. Or Texas, if Texas ever gets its act together. And it's amazing, oh. even under the formula that uh, – Go, kind of going backwards on this, that, you know, if you had had 12 teams at the start of the uh, uh, college football playoffs, Texas still wouldn't have made it. TCU would have made it twice. Baylor would have made it twice. Texas A&M would have made it. And, uh, but, but no Texas, which is 
kind of astounding. But yeah, it would help a team like Oklahoma. It could potentially help a team like Texas A&M. Uh, you might see them more. Um, so, um, the, uh, and, and from a local standpoint, SMU now has a chance to make the college football playoff. Think about that. There, there was, you know, even if Sonny Dykes had put together a remarkable season, like the kind that um, UCF had a couple years ago or Houston in 2016 under Tom Herman, it wasn't going to happen. The door was closed for the American Athletic Conference. And give a lot of credit to Commissioner Mike Oresco. He kept pounding the table and pounding the table, and people eventually listened. And now the door is open for the American Athletic or somebody, you know, Mountain West representative or whoever, maybe multiple ones, which would have been the case last year, to be in the college football playoff. And, and that's something that if you're a coach at those schools, you can really sell. You know, you, you know, if you're Sonny Dykes, you're saying, we're not just going to be playing, you know, in whatever, you know, whatever bowl we fall into, but you can actually be on a stage playing at Notre Dame, playing at, oh, you know, um, playing at Michigan, playing at one of these first round games. You can be the team that hangs the banner here. And, and that's a remarkable achievement. I mean, this really broadens uh, right now, the, the college football playoff had become, frankly, a little stale. I mean, um, you know, 28 births the first seven years, and 20 of those were filled by Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, and Ohio State. It, it was, you know, round up the usual suspects. And um, now it's a brave new world out there. You know, you, you're getting more of an NCAA tournament vibe with potential for Cinderella's and great, more great finishes. And, and and that sort of thing, which you can really build on. Chuck, you, you rocked me a little bit when you were talking about the, my my Longhorns and them needing to get their act together. But I, I do agree with you, and I really hope that uh, this season we're, we're turning some things around. But can you share maybe what some of the, I don't know, opposition or naysayers may be saying about this proposal? Not a whole lot right now. I, I think people were stunned initially uh, and mostly thought it might be going to six. And, and then all of a sudden to have these people, and, and remember, these are not Johnny come lately to the situation. When it comes to where things stand now in college football, these are power brokers. I mean, the SEC clearly, and Greg Sankey has been around long enough. Uh, Bob Bowlesby, no stranger to college athletics for a long time. He's been at um, uh, Big 12 for close to a decade. Uh, Jack Swarbrick, the AD at Notre Dame, has been around for a while. And even Craig Thompson at the Mountain West is, is a guy who's represented the group of five, you know, for more than a decade. So you look at that group, plus you do not have people like Jim Delaney, the very powerful former Big yeah. Ten commissioner, who was basically, you know, uh, a huge roadblock to playoff expansion because of the Big Ten's connection to the Rose Bowl. He's gone now. He's in retirement. Uh, you know, John Swafford, who, you know, longtime commissioner of the ACC, he's gone now, uh, both within the last year. Uh, Kevin Warren, the Big Ten commissioner, is fairly, is fairly new. So is Jim Phillips at the ACC. Um, Pac-12 new commissioner, came from the MGM Grand a couple months ago and, and was booking Celine Dion for concerts. So yeah, he's having to get, you know, 
going pretty quick on this. So yeah, these are high-powered guys who came up with. They're serious guys. They spent two years on this in, in a lot of secrecy, as Sports Illustrated detailed this week. As, as uh, Kevin might be uh, interested to know that uh, one of the key people on the timing of this announcement, teasing it in April and then uh, coming out with it uh, this month was Ari Fleischer, who I believe you might have worked with in a uh, in a yeah, yeah. at one yeah. point. So, um, you know, Chuck, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the secret meetings. I mean, one of those, if I'm not mistaken, was at the DFW Hyatt. Everything seems to happen and have a connection to Dallas uh, in one way or another. Do I have that right? That they the idea to go to 12 may have been hatched in one of those uh, uh, secret uh, huddles, uh, you know, here in Dallas. Yeah, either the uh, and actually there were two key meetings: one at the DFW Hyatt, as you referenced, and all, one at the uh, the Four Seasons in Las Colinas. Uh, right. uh, and, and again, under secrecy, where they're they're not listed on the hotel uh, listing a meeting right. day, where somebody can just want, oh, college football playoff, oh, gee, uh, you know that sort of thing. No, no, yeah. this uh, cloak and dagger type stuff, and because they really didn't want it leaking out and generating kind of blowback or generating expectations. Then um, in April, after a fairly mundane press release of 15 paragraphs detailing what they did at a, you know, the, the full CFB did in a meeting, it was, oh, by the way, we also discussed 63 possible playoffs uh, possibilities. Right. You know, and what about like, that? You, met, you mentioned the Rose Bowl, uh, final question. Uh, they are going to have to move off of January 1st, which they have always resisted. And if I'm not mistaken, have, have you know, the Tournament of Roses parade, there's lots of implications. Uh, will, they, will they be willing to, to shift in the interest of making this happen? Uh, again, great question. And, uh, you know, only they can answer it. I mean, if this stays with the Bulls, I mean, they could conceivably stay on January 1st, but that means they never host a uh, semifinal. Um, that they would be uh, in one of those quarterfinals. The CFP would probably accommodate them, putting them on January 1st, tying with the parade, which is important to them, all this sort of thing. But they would be locked into uh, quarterfinals without the tie-in to the Pac-12 or the Big Ten whatsoever. I mean, the other bowls are going to say, fine. You know, that means eventually one more semifinal for us that wouldn't be hosted by the Rose Bowl. If the Rose Bowl balks at that, if they say, no, 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 we want our traditional matchup, all this kind of stuff, then, yeah, you're looking for maybe another bowl or just five bowls at this point. I mean, the, I don't see the Rose Bowl uh, be willing to go out into January to host a semifinal. That's just not in their culture at this point. And, and uh, yeah, you can feel sorry for them. It's granddaddy of them all. It's great backdrop for a bowl game. It's steeped in history and tradition. But they've kind of ruled college football and kind of dictated terms for a long time. The, the train's leaving the station. It's up to them to make that decision. Chuck, thanks so much for breaking it down for us. And a programming note for our Mike Drop subscribers, the episode that I'll drop on July 2nd will include Bill Hancock, who's the big cheese uh, right, Chuck, that runs the college football playoff. And Bill's going to continue on Chuck's uh, points here. And we'll break it down even further. So so thanks again to Chuck Carlton of the Dallas Morning News for breaking it down today. Look forward to having Bill on. And uh, over to Rachel with a word from one of our Mic Drop sponsors. 
Powerhands is a global athletic training and rehabilitation product tech company that enhances human performance through the designs, innovative technology. If you are a coach, athlete, fitness enthusiast, Powerhands is for you. Who doesn't want to improve their overall performance and recovery? Even better, Powerhands is Dallas-based and a portion of every product purchased. Helps provide athletic and academic programs to youth and underserved communities. Go to powerhands.com and improve your athletic performance today. Thanks, Rachel. And now it's my pleasure to welcome to the mic drop Jim Nill, Stars General Manager. Jim played for Team Canada back in the 1980 Olympics, finished his nine-year NHL playing career with the Red Wings, three years in scouting for the Ottawa Senators, then a long and highly successful run uh, as a front office executive with the Red Wings, which, which was during a time when, the, when Detroit won four Stanley Cups. So that's a big deal. Jim's been the Stars GM since 2013. Jim, welcome to the mic drop. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you start bringing up 1980, you're kind of aging me now, so be careful. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, the, the years have flown by. Uh, before we get to the stars, Jim, we, we spent a little time earlier today talking about the legacy of Donnie Nelson as the, as the, uh, the Mavericks GM. And uh, uh, you know, I worked for the Mavericks when, when Donnie came on board and was an eyewitness to Donnie's misdirection with the rest of the NBA on, on uh, uh, putting the Mavericks in position to acquire Dirk Nowitzki, where he downplayed uh, what he thought Dirk's abilities were and what his, what his prospects were to the point where the Mavericks were able to, to snag him. That, that's, uh, that's part of what a GM has to do sometimes, right? Is a little misdirection, whether it's in free agency or a trade or a draft pick. Uh, how often does that come into play in the NHL? Well, you know, first of all, Donnie did an unbelievable job with the Mavericks, and uh, I think you got to give him a lot of credit. Uh, you know, sometimes when things go sideways, it's easy to point fingers, but uh, what a great career, and I think he'll continue to impact the NBA down the road, but uh, a great job by him, and, and a great legacy to talk about all these years, so uh, congratulations to him. Uh, it, it is very important that there's going to be, there's times when you have to make some major decisions, and usually they're, they're decisions that people don't understand why those are happening at the time. And to be fair to the, the fans out there, they don't have the backstory. Uh, there's always a lot of pieces that come into play with decisions and uh, they might not understand, you know, a salary cap. They might not understand, uh, there might be an injury situation. Uh, there might be an ownership situation for all you know. So there's a lot of different variables that come into play. Um, and, and so when decisions are made and you talk about the, the Dirk decision, uh, that, that was a franchise changing decision and, and a great move by him. And uh, the rest is documented. We're going to get, you've got a busy off season, including an expansion draft, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute, you know, an NHL GM, I mean, you, you have to be pretty good at math uh, because the salary cap is a real thing. Some people say the NHL is the most uh, of all the leagues. It's the most sort of GM league because of the way you have to manage the cap in order to make, personnel decisions. What's your approach this offseason in terms of the Stars' own free agents and, and just what you can do to improve the team? Yeah, the first thing, we have a hard cap, so there's no getting around it. It's uh, you're either it's this year it's set at 81.5, and because of the pandemic, it's probably going to be 81.5 for the next probably four seasons, uh, which really affects contracts moving forward. When you talk about escalating salaries and everything else. Um, so, you know, a lot of 
decisions have to be made, hard decisions that way. I'm very fortunate. You know, first of all, I think the biggest thing is to hire great people. And I've got some great people around me. I got Mark Jankos, uh, one of my assistant general managers. He helps to manage the cap. Uh, Scott White does the same thing. And uh, you're only as good as the people around you. So I'm very fortunate that way. Uh, but we have some major decisions to make. We're Right now, I'd say probably 80% of the teams in the NHL are at 81.5 at the cap already. And uh, it doesn't take, uh, I've got a calculator that only goes to that number. And it doesn't take a genius to know that uh, when you have players that are making a million dollars and they're going to jump up to five, six, seven million. So you're adding five to seven million to your cap. Um, something has to come off it. And so that's where we have to make tough decisions. Uh, you know, there's... Um, in this world, the star players are always going to get their money, and they should. They're, they're the ones that drive the bus. Uh, uh, they're, they're the ones that perform, and then they're going to get their money. But we have to be uh, very, you know, hockey's a team game, and, and that's where it's tough, where you're talking about 20 players on the ice and a roster of about 23 uh, that come into the cap. And so uh, to have success, uh, the better job uh, as a management team we do managing the cap the more success our team's going to have. And that, that's a real juggling act is, um, you know, I always tell the story when I talk to players before their contracts are up, you know, I, I tell them, you know, if you take a little bit less, 250 here, 500 here, it gives me a chance to get a, a one more better player. And they all agree with it until it becomes their turn. <laughs> and, you know, they've got representation, they got agents, and I don't blame them. That's not their problem. That's my problem. But every, every bit of money that I can save on every contract is going to make the difference to what I can add to the rest of the roster. And that's the, that's the tough level here. You're also dealing with the juggling act of the expansion draft this year, July 23rd. We've got the Seattle Kraken becoming the NHL's 32nd team. The rules are sort of complicated. It's generally, what is it? You could protect seven forwards, three defensemen and one goalie, or under some circumstance, it's eight skaters and a goalie. Explain that to us and what your approach is going to be, especially on the goaltender front, you know, Vegas, a lot of their success was that they nabbed uh, Mark Andre Fleury as their as their top pick in their expansion draft. What are you? How are you going to approach this? We're still. We've got two or three different ways we can go. We're we're actually sitting pretty good at the expansion draft. Uh, you, know, you mentioned the seven three and one or the eight and one. That all depends. There's a lot of other rules that can get pretty complicated here. We could probably sit here for an hour as I try to explain it. But uh, it all comes down to games experience. Uh, how many years in the league, whether you have to be protected or not. Younger players and entry-level contracts do not have to be protected. So we're actually sitting pretty good right now. Uh, we we got to make a couple decisions, but I can, we can, as an organization, we can go some different directions. Uh, you know, the one thing is, you know, we went, everybody went through the Vegas draft, and I think we've all sat back, you know, our job is to analyze what went right that way, what went wrong, and when we look back, uh, I think the one thing we realized, we're going to lose one player. And it, it may be a good player, or uh, I, I may be able to move that player to another team. So we'll make those decisions. Uh, as far as the goaltending, uh, we have some decisions to make there. Ben Bishop has missed two seasons with injuries. We're waiting to see where his situation is. Uh, and that comes into play, what direction we can go there. So a lot of decisions to be made. That'll happen over the next three, four weeks as teams... Uh, you know, everything's been pushed back this year because of the pandemic. We're kind of a month later. The playoffs are still going on. Uh, but things are starting to heat up now with teams talking. Uh, and now Seattle's starting to get more calls from teams. So we'll, we'll see where that situation plays out. 
So, Jim, I have to thank you for that nugget that you were talking about with salary caps. I, uh, I also teach a class at SMU, and this is always a, a top uh, topic in the class in terms of how salary caps work, uh, the distinction amongst uh, different professional leagues. So uh, hopefully some of those students will be listening. But I'm going to continue on on the uh, NHL entry draft, obviously uh, coming up here July 23rd to uh, 24th. Uh, the Stars have the 14th pick. Uh, give us a sense of how deep this class is and what the Stars may be looking for. It's a good uh, – it's a pretty deep group. Um, I'd say not as many maybe high, high-end um, players. But where we have to be careful when I say that is we've gone through a season here where uh, we've had a pandemic. Uh, a, a lot of leagues do not play. The Ontario Hockey League did not play any games this year. Uh, in Europe, a lot of games were shut down. The teams that did play, the leagues that did play, maybe only played 34 game, 30 to 40 games. So there's a lot of unknown in this draft, which has some downside to it, but also some upside. I think there's going to be some real surprises. Uh, you might end up getting a player in the third or fourth round that uh, if we were in the regular world right now, would go in the top 10 in the draft. So uh, our staff's done a great job. We, we've all had to, you know, scouts that could get out there to see some games did a great job uh, and then we've been doing a lot by video scouting and uh, we've, we've had no choice the whole league has had to do that so going to be an interesting draft a lot of unknowns there's some great players in it um, every year there's players in the draft and uh, you know our kind of our guideline is we'd like to get if we can get three players out of every draft you know you have seven rounds if you can get two to three players out of every draft and end up, end up playing in the NHL you've done a good job and that's kind of our attitude as we head into it. Well, we definitely wish you all the best of luck there. You mentioned earlier uh, about some injuries to, to the Stars. We've kind of been crushed by injuries over in the past. Uh, Joel Hanley, uh, the most recent Stars to undergo uh, a surgery. How long will he be out? And uh, obviously Tyler Sagan, Ben Bishop, Alexander Radulov, Rope Hintz. Uh, will all of those be ready for, for training camp for our Stars to be back on the ice? Yes, Joel uh, Hanley had surgery yesterday. Uh, it was for core injury, uh, which is kind of your stomach area. Uh, uh, he, he'll be fine. He'll be ready for training camp. Everyone else uh, so far is on schedule to be back healthy. Tyler Sagan will be healthy. Uh, you know, he came back and played some games. This extra two or three months now should really help him for his training to get back to 100%. Radulov, really the same injury as, as Hanley. Uh, he should be ready to go. Um, Ben Bishop is probably the biggest question mark. Uh, we're, we're still waiting to see how his uh, injury is going to, uh, you know, we were, ex he was hoping to get back just after the trade deadline. Didn't happen. So then we decided to shut him down. We're uh, anticipating that this extra time maybe will help his situation. Uh, and then that probably the biggest injury of all of them was Rupe Hintz. And uh, that was major surgery, but he has three to four months to rehab and we expect him to be ready for the start of the season. So, Jim, I'm going to go back to some of Sully's intro for you and where he was uh, uh, kind of establishing your age. But uh, the, we're going into the Olympics here, and uh, we're going to have some, uh, some of the podcasts, some guests on that are Olympians. And I'm just uh, interested to know kind of maybe what your fondest memories were back in 1980 of being on that Canadian team and what that experience was like. Yeah, you know, first of all, it, it's just such an honor to be able to play for your country. Uh, you know, we spent the whole year uh, as a team coming together. You train, you know, for the Olympics. We're traveling to Europe, traveling, you know, to Russia, 
playing all these games, trying to get ready for the Olympics. We were a young team, much like the U.S. team, the 1980 team. We were mostly all college kids, uh, kid players out of junior, so very young. And, you know, the greatest memory, it was in Lake Placid that year. And uh, it's so different from the Olympics nowadays. You know, Lake Placid is just, a, anybody that's been there is upstate New York. It's a small town of about maybe 2,000 people at the best of times. And uh, we ended up, they, they built a penitentiary up there. That was where we stayed, was in the penitentiary. Um, <laughs> a great experience meeting all the athletes. Uh, the, you know, the, the, probably the, the, the toughest part is it goes by so fast. And that's why I always tell athletes, uh, you know, enjoy the moment, soak it in because it, things go by so fast. But, uh, uh, you know, the greatest moments we played against Russia, we actually played Russia just before the U.S., uh, the U.S. beat them, I believe, in a game three, two, or four, three. We also lost four. We lost four, three to the Russians, and it was a great game. The Canada-Russia rivalry is huge, and uh, it was a knockout battle. And unfortunately, we lost uh, to that. So uh, that was unfortunate. But just to be there, represent your country, uh, to stand hand in hand with other athletes, uh, just a great experience, and kind of. Parlay. I could talk forever here. I ended up when I re retired. Detroit asked me to go live in Glens Falls, New York, was our where our farm team was with Andrew Andrew Red Wings. I went down there to manage that team, and that's about an hour and a half from Lake Placid. And uh, another side story to all this is we received small packets from people, uh, from students that they gave to all the athletes. Well, I opened up mine. 20 years later, I'd opened it up, but now I, I kind of, it was sitting around the house, I opened it up, and it was from a, a student in Glens Falls, New York, that sent me mine, and uh, I ended up uh, giving her a call, and oh, wow. we had a chance to meet, uh, to think that about 40 years later, you'd meet uh, somebody that, was, you know, a student at the time that was six years old, uh, that would send you a package, or, uh, you know, a welcome package, and here I was living in the same town as her, so it's a small world, uh, you know, sports and the hockey world is a small world and, and full of great people. Hockey is full of great people. And, you know, I, I spent 18 years with the Mavericks. I was an NBA guy. And then since 2009 in my consulting life, I've, I've worked uh, with the NHL and I've met, you know, so many people. And I tell people all the time, there are hockey people are awesome. They're, they're and you mentioned team, it is team, team, team. And I think that there's a humility and a gratitude about the opportunity to be involved in the game. What, so many cool traditions and things, but I mean, as a lifer, you're, what, do you see it that way? I mean, do you, do you know what I'm talking about here as a guy who came in hockey with an outsider's perspective, just I've been blown away by the quality of the people. Yeah, we're very blessed, and, and there's great people in every sport, uh, but we're very blessed. You talked about the team. We're a little bit different from some other sports. Uh, you know, basketball is kind of a five or six-man unit. We're, we're 20 to 23-man unit all the time, and 20 have to play in the game all the time, and there has to be that cohesion. So that's a big part of the team environment. Um, you know, players, a star player will play 20 minutes a night you know, almost max, you know, that's only one third of the game. And so you have to have other teammates have to step up. And uh, so there is that great team environment. You know, it, it's different, you know, you go back now, it's changed a lot now, but you know, a lot of us were farm boys growing up. It was just kind of the attitude, you're a farm boy, you come from a small town up in Canada or the Northern US, and then you've got 
small town you know, European players coming in. So a little bit of our, I guess, of our makeup, you know, that's starting to change a lot more. We're starting to see a lot more you know, players coming out of the south and bigger cities and that the game is evolving, which is good. Uh, but it, I think it just gets back to the team environment. Uh, you got to play for the team to have success. The team's all going to chip in whether you're playing five minutes or 20 minutes. Um, and then it's a fast fast paced game. You know, you're on the ice for 45 seconds max as your shifts, uh, anything longer than that, and you're not, not effective. So yeah, it's, it's an evolving game all the time, always moving and uh, everybody's got to be on board. You're not going to have success. And some of the great storytellers in sports are hockey people. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some, <laughs> some great stories and, you know, I think it's in every sport, but uh, yeah, no, there's, uh, I guess yeah, I get back to, there's some great people and great stories. Yeah. And uh, so you're, you're demonstrating it right here, Jim, with your, with your own humility, sort of referencing the other sports, but I love hockey, hockey people. Last thing I heard Brian Burke once say that it was different scouting hockey players than the other sports in his view, because there's no two hockey plays that are the same. There's less repetition and predictability uh, maybe than there than there are in, in other sports. I mean, do you see it that way? And when you're evaluating talent, and we have the draft coming up, you're going through this process right now. What, what do you? It's just, what do you look for? Well, I guess to answer the first part of the question, uh, where our sports a little bit different is we're looking at kids when they're 16, 17 years of age. Uh, we're drafting them when they're 18. So we start at 16, kind of watching them. That we call them underages. By the time they hit 17, some of those players at 17 will be eligible for the draft uh, because of their birth dates. And by 18, they're, they're getting drafted. And, um, you know, I have three children myself. And uh, I know when they were 16, 17, eight years of age, I lived with them every day. And I couldn't, I'm still, I still, they're, they're 30, 24, and uh, 34 now. And I still don't know what they're going to be. Uh, and I always tell people I'm 63 now. I'm still searching out where I want to be. So, so we're we're dealing with with young adults at 18 years of age that some right now might be 5'10 and 140 pounds, and all of a sudden they have a growth spurt at the age of 19, and they're 6'2, 210. We can't. You can try to predict that, but you can't. That's human nature. That that's God's will. He, he's gonna, you know, he's he's set that template for everybody. So we're dealing in a in a sport. That we're because of the age we draft them, we're not 100% what we're getting. Uh, you know, I, I've met some 18 year old kids that are more mature than people that are 35, uh, physically and mentally. Uh, I've met some young kids that are physically already, you know, they're, they're 6'3, 240, they're already developed, but mentally they're not developed. Uh, so the combination of that makes it tough, and that's why you're getting you see in drafts, you'll see somebody. I am going to use an example. We, we drafted Pavel Datsuk. Uh, I believe it was in the fifth round uh, when I was in Detroit. And at the time, he was about 5'10", 140 pounds. And you saw him, if you go watch him play, you'd say, oh, boy, he's going to have a tough time. You know, it's you know, how you project what's he going to be. Yeah, he's got skill, but how's he going to survive? If anybody that's watching the playoffs right now, it's a war out there. How's he going to survive? But that's the tough part of scouting. That's the projection part. That's where years of experience of our scouts seeing players and anticipating who's gonna, you know, who, who's gonna develop, who's gonna, not gonna develop. Um, that's the tough part of the business. That, that's where our business gets tough because of the age where we're, we're trying to predict players, you know, what, what are they gonna be at 23, 24? 
and uh, some of that is their hard work. You know, how are they gonna, the time they put in to get better and stronger and some of it is just human nature. So, so that's the tough part of our, our business. And uh, so, you know, as we move into this draft, that, that's, those are the things we have to predict. And uh, that's, the, like I said, that, that's, that's always the intriguing part. Hey, Jim, we're gonna close with a question from our intern, Marcus Carr. Hey, Jim. So uh, you just talked about developing young players. And uh, I, had, I had a question about uh, Jason Robertson's uh, seller season this year and what you thought of the, the Calder Trophy push uh, by him. Yes. Hi, Marcus. Uh, great question. And as I we can kind of we parlay into Jason Robertson, he's a great example. Uh, what we talked about, you know, Jason Robertson, uh, as an under when he was 17, 16, 17, he was, you know, not fully developed yet. Um, and wasn't a very good skater. Uh, he had a tough time getting around the, the ice, but you could see he had the head, he had the hockey sense, uh, he had the puck skills and all that. Uh, our guys loved what they saw that part and we drafted him in the second round. And uh, now we go into, we draft him, now we bring him to development camps and we start preaching to him about, you gotta start working out off the ice, you gotta start developing, you gotta eat better, uh, you gotta work year round in the summertime, you, you gotta, do all these things to get better. Now you see the finished product. It's been three years. This will be his third year. He's a Calder Cup finalist. And he's he's going to be one of my poster boys when we go to development camp and we draft kids this year. There's going to be a poster of Jason Robertson of here's how he did it. And it's what we talk about. Uh, it's the same thing, you know, get off this a little bit. We had Jamie Ben come to teach, speak to our development uh, at our development camp about three years ago. Jamie Ben was the same way. Jamie Ben shared his story, how he came to development camp. He looked around the dressing room, uh, the, you know, the room when we're having a meeting and he saw all these big, strong kids. He was out of shape, uh, was overweight, had never worked out before. And he said he was scared to death to go on the ice. And now here's Jamie Ben, the ultimate power forward in the game. Uh, one of the most fit guys, strongest guys in the game. And, uh, Won, won the MVP race and captain of our team. So it's an example. And Jason Robertson, as I mentioned, he's that poster boy now. He's, he's done everything right. He's committed to the game. Uh, got outstanding hockey sense. His hockey sense is off the charts. Uh, and he's got a great stick. You watch him steal pucks. He's not maybe the prettiest guy on the ice, but there is a poetic movement to him. How If you watch him close, how he sees things and what he sees. Uh, some guys have a a knack of slowing the game down. When you, if you ever go to a game, go down by the ice, sit by the glass, and all of a sudden you're, you'll get an appreciation for how big these players are, how fast the game is, and there's no time to think. A player like Jason Robertson, somehow he gets cornered by three players and they never get him. Somehow he moves the puck at the right time. Uh, he steals a puck from him at the right time. And that's, there's a knack to that. That's the hockey sense part where he just, he just has a knack of creating time and space, even though he's not the fastest guy or the strongest guy. And that's, that's a great, great knack to have. Well, I know Kaprizov had a great season in Minnesota, but we've been pushing for Jason for the Calder Cup uh, all, all season here on the mic drop. So our, 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 uh, uh, whatever happens, he, he's had a, a great season and that was a great pick. So so, Jim, thanks so much for uh, joining us here on the Mic Drop and uh, all the best in this important offseason for the Stars. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on here and uh, look forward to speaking to you.
down the road. All the best, everybody. Okay, uh, over to Rachel with a word from one of our sponsors. Looking to get out of the house in a safe way? Try having a relaxing weekend at the spa or a fun family staycation for spring break. The Omni Dallas Hotel is right in the heart of downtown, within walking distance to some of the area's best restaurants and unique shopping. The Uptown Terrace Infinity Pool is a family-friendly retreat during the day and a great place to watch a romantic sunset over the Dallas skyline at night. Go to omnihotels.com Dallas for the best offers and plan your post-quarantine staycation today. Because why? Big wins happen here. Thanks, Rachel. Our pleasure now to be joined by Mark McLemore. 19-year career in Major League Baseball for Mark, including a great run with the Rangers from 1995 to 99 as the Rangers' doctor of defense at second base. And <laughs> occasionally, Mark, out in the outfield, they throw you out there once in a while, I remember. Uh, currently an analyst on Rangers' uh, Belly Sports broadcast crew. Really, really great to have you on the mic drop. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, fellas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Mark, you played uh, 19 years, five here in Dallas, uh, also played multiple years in Baltimore, Seattle, and Anaheim. Like so many uh, DFW pro athletes that we've had on the mic drop and others that we hope to have in the future, you retired here. Why, why Dallas? It, it's a great place to raise a family. Uh, we came here in 95, so our kids were really small then. So uh, it, we just liked it, fell in love with it. Uh, we thought it was a great place to be. And then you know, obviously playing during my career, it's in the middle of the country. So that didn't hurt things. So going to the West Coast, uh, maybe a two and a half, three hour trip, the East Coast, three hours. So that was one of the important factors as well. Well, thank you for being such a such a great ambassador. We've got a lot of great ambassadors here in, in Dallas. And um, so we want to get to some news here. What's your take on Major League Baseball's crackdown on the use of foreign substances? Uh, no surprise hitters like this more than pitchers, uh, but what are your uh, thoughts on it? My honest, my honest opinion on it is I think uh, they're going down the wrong path. Foreign substances have been used by pretty much every pitcher. I won't say pretty much every pitcher, because when you get that ball out of the box, it's like a block of ice. It's slippery. So you have to put something on it. Now, some guys may use more uh, than others. Uh, it never bothered me, but that, that's been a known fact for many, many years, long before I played, that's always been the case. So the rule has always been there, but Major League Baseball has always known about it as well. So for them to say right now in the middle of the season, okay, pitchers, stop doing it. That's a, that's a, that's a tough thing to do. Hopefully we won't see uh, injuries because of it, but man, that's, that's, this is just a very, very difficult time to make that kind of decision. Yeah, Tyler Glasnow of the Rays made it about uh, injury injury risk. You know, he uh, he he said that the, the ball's slippery and he doesn't get the right grip. It could be a he, he could be a danger to hitters. He could be a danger to himself. And said his hand was really sore when he did it without without his rosin and sunscreen was what he said he he used. Uh, do you really think the injury angle is is uh, is 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 relevant here on this on this point? Absolutely. I think because pitchers are now going to have to grip the ball differently. And whenever you do something differently, whether you're in the box, uh, on the field, uh, playing defense or pitching, it's going to have an effect. How much of an effect it's going to have, I don't know. Uh, is injury one of them? Uh, listening to uh, 
Glasnow describe what he had to do in order to pitch with nothing, which was grip that ball tighter so he doesn't, you know, so he can maintain that grip. Uh, that puts more pressure on the arm, the elbow, the shoulder, all of those things. So um, I'm going to take his word for it. And, you know, we'll see, you know, how that goes once everything go falls into place on the 21st. But uh, just a tough time to do it. Uh, hopefully this isn't a reaction to um, the offense that hasn't really been going on in Major League Baseball. Right now, this is the lowest batting average ever recorded in major league baseball so they're saying hey this is a, a dominant pitcher here which i absolutely disagree with um that's just not the case so i think this may be a smoke screen to divert attention from why uh teams aren't hitting as well why, why strikeouts are are up way up and the batting average is way down it, it does seem to be a move to inject offense back in in your day the hit and run stolen bases it was it, you know balls were put in play a lot more and you know, the fans seem to be in favor of this move as a way to level the playing field. You know, we're studying spin rate and we're going to, and we're seeing already that it's changing just in the two weeks that MLB sort of put out the warning that this was going to happen. Uh, as a hitter, aren't you, uh, you know, aren't you happy to see the playing field leveled a little bit? I'm a little bit surprised to, to hear your hot take on this, Mark. That, that's not leveling the playing field. It's always been that way. So we've had guys get 3,000 hits in a career with guys doing some of the things they do on the mound. Uh, in, in my opinion, that's not what it, that's not what's going to relate to better offense. The whole thing is, you know, you mentioned hit and runs, driving guys in, hitting the ball the other way. All of those things are part of baseball. Not anymore, they're not. You don't see that anymore because the philosophy of scoring runs and how you score those runs has changed. Every organization teaches all of their hitters on a roster, a different flight path or swing path, which is to hit a home run, a three-run homer with nobody on. That's what every player seems to be trying to do when they get in that batter's box. It's just not possible. So you have a different philosophy on hitting. The swing has changed drastically. So you can't do those things. You can't hit and run because the guy's going to swing and miss. They can't take the ball the other way. So when you see the extreme shifts out there, when you've got – four infielders on one side of the infield and your major league hitter cannot hit the ball to the other side of the field that tells you there's something wrong that doesn't that's not dominant pitching that's not dominant pitching dominant pitching to me is when you've got a guy that's out there on the mound and he's going to throw seven or eight innings the starter not one reliever every inning so dominant pitching means you're going deep into the game you're facing that lineup three times, four times, you know, a night, not twice. Organizations are, in my opinion, are scared to let their starters go deeper into games, meaning they don't want them to see him for a third time because now, hey, the hitters are familiar with this guy. Let's bring somebody else in and keep throwing somebody different at them. That's just not, uh, that's just not being a dominant pitcher. So uh, I, as you can tell, I, I have a lot of opinions about this. I'm not a guy that normally defends what a pitcher does on the mound. But in this case, this is something that's always been there. It's always been done. But it's the, the philosophy, the offensive philosophy that teams have now where they're waiting around for the three-run homer. So, Mark, we're going to switch gears a little bit and focus on our Rangers and would like to just get your thoughts of what are – what are the bright spots? We know we've been struggling a little bit. Who do you like? And what uh, do we need to do into the future? 
Well, we've got to be patient, number one. We've got a young team. We're in a rebuilding phase right now. Uh, and it's going to take some time. How much time? I don't know. But if you you know look back at what the Astros have done over the last uh, seven, eight, nine years, uh, it's pretty remarkable. But I think people tend to forget, I believe 2012, 13, and 14, somewhere around there, they lost 100 games three times, three years in a row. I'm not saying the Rangers are going to be in the, or in that position, but when you're rebuilding, those are some of the things that happen. So when you've got some younger players on the team that you're trying to figure out, hey, can this guy be a, a very good Major League Baseball player? Can he help us in the future? You have to let those guys go out there and play. You have to learn how to win. You can't just have the talent and, and get to the big leagues and go out there and win. If you look at some of the Ranger teams, uh, the couple of Ranger teams that have been to the World Series, a few years before they got there, those were the same guys that were on that team but they gained that experience, they got better, and they learned how to win a baseball game. And what I mean by that is you have to figure out, you have to recognize the turning point in a game. Usually it's going to be two, three, sometimes four turning points in a game. And that pitcher or that hitter or that defensive player has to recognize when that is. So you've got bases loaded, nobody out, it's the seventh inning, and your, your pitcher's on the mound, he's got to make a pitch. This is that time. This is the turning point in the game. If I make a bad pitch and they drive in all three runs or a grand slam, we lose. So this is that time that pitcher has to recognize what he needs to do in the situation and then execute it. That means get out of that inning without giving up a run or your team's going to lose. So there are situations like that. Same thing on the offensive side. When you're hitting, you've got a runner at third base less than two outs. That's the winning run at third base. You've got to, you've got to recognize that. And then you've got to hit something to the outfield to score that run to win a ball game. So it's about recognizing the turning points in the game and then executing it. Well, Mark, I think you, you hit it on the head there in terms of patience. I think sometimes our fans are expecting a championship uh, uh, season every year and don't understand maybe the bigger picture of uh, what's happening and, uh, you know, the development of players. But I, I'd like to get your perspective on – you know, we have a new asset or the Rangers have a new asset in Globe Life Field and maybe how important that uh, new facility is for, for not only the fans, but uh, the Rangers organization as well as uh, those athletes and players. Well, number one, I think it's a beautiful stadium. There's no question about it. I, I love the new stadium, Globe Life Field. Uh, I think what it's going to do, it's going to help Ranger players. There's no question because you're not in that heat every day. Uh, they just started heating up here last week. <laughs> like it normally does. A little toasty year, yesterday so. at 102. <laughs> yes. So having the option to have the roof open or closed to protect the players and fans uh, from this weather, I think that's going to play a huge part because there are some players that have played here in the past in the heat in the old stadium uh, that can, you know, lose some energy and lose some, some spark the second half of the season once, uh, you know, the heat really kicks in. So I think it will help in that aspect. Um, you know, I loved playing outside, though, in the heat. You just have to really take care of yourself, drink a lot of water, and not be out in the sun directly for hours on end and then go try and play a major league baseball game. So yeah. having the roof, I definitely think it's going to help. We had Pudge Rodriguez on a few weeks ago, and he told us he thought it was a competitive advantage. He said being from Puerto Rico, he had no trouble with the heat, even as a catcher. And he he sort of he kind of took the same approach. He thought as long as you take care of yourself, and he, he was very used to it. Who of the young players that we're now seeing get a chance? Who do you who do you like, and who do you think the fans ought to latch on to, as as uh, 
as the, the young players with the best, uh, with the best uh, prospects for a long future with the Rangers? Well, I'll tell you the guy that's really impressed me is uh, Isaiah kiner Falefa. Uh, this guy, is, I, first of all, I love his energy, the passion that he brings to the game every single day. This guy comes to the ballpark. We used to call it back in the day. He comes to work with his lunch pail. He's coming to do some work. There's no question about it. But if you look at his career, this guy got to the big leagues as a backup catcher. A catcher. And then the Rangers said, hey, you know, we need you to play third base. Adrian Beltre, Adrian Beltre is retiring. Uh, let's try you at third. Not does he just go to third base but he wins a gold glove at third base and hits pretty well. This year, okay, we're gonna trade Elvis. Isaiah, we want you to go to short. He moves to shortstop. He's playing an excellent shortstop right now, hitting about 290 right now, 15 stolen bases, playing every single day, making all the plays that he's supposed to make at shortstop. That is a tremendous feat. There aren't many people. I, can't, I can only think of one person that's gone from behind the plate to the middle of the infield and done well. And that's Craig Biggio and he ended up as a hall of famer. Uh, so that's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's not like coming from the outfield and going to the infield or the infield going to the outfield. You're behind the plate with all that gear on that takes a toll on your body. He didn't do it for very long, but just going from that catcher's position to third base, winning a gold glove and then shortstop, man, that's impressive. So uh, he's right there. Matter of fact, I think he's still leading the league in hits. So that helps as well. So I think Isaiah kind of left it for me is that guy I love to watch. He's a kind of a Michael Young type of player for me. I would pay to go and watch uh, Kiner play every single day. What about your approach uh, as a broadcaster? You, 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 you do a really nice job on the on uh, belly sports and on, on, uh, on, on pregame and all the things that you're doing. How do you, how, 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 how have you made that transition? You, you, you know, what's your approach to, uh, to, to doing a great job on air? Well, for me, the one thing or the main thing that I really try to do is I try to get the audience, the fans, the spectators to see the game being played through a ball player's eye and break it down into terms that they're not normally used to hearing on a daily basis like baseball players are. So I try to really give them that game. I, I like them being in my head and looking through my eyes and watching that game and knowing all the things that are going on that you know the announcers can't, nor, can't really fit into uh, a game in between pitches during, during, the, during action or any of that. So I try to give them that insight from a player's point of view. So, Mark, uh, we, we talk a lot about um, our ambassadors and players who live here and, and uh, their community work. You just, I believe, had a celebrity softball classic to benefit Folds of Honor and Vets for Child Rescue uh, last week at Globe Life Field. Can you tell us about it? Who was the best uh, celebrity players? How can, how can people support this uh, initiative for you? Well, I, I'll tell you what, first of all, it was an honor for me to be invited to participate in that. And listen, anytime you can give back or I can give back uh, to help the veterans that have helped us and help me go out there and, and do what I did for a living uh, for so many years, uh, I, I'm all for it. Uh, it was a great event, uh, a huge turnout. I mean, there were so many fans that showed up uh, for, that, for the game or both games. Uh, it was just a tremendous honor for me to be even to even be uh, participating in that. Any, any celebrities able to, uh, you know, hit the hit the ball, look pretty good out there? Who surprised uh, I'll, you? I'll tell you, uh, 
Oh God, let's see. Uh, Zeke got on base. He did. He did. He did well. Uh, I'll tell you what, the Gronkowski brothers—they can play some baseball. I think one of them played minor league baseball, and those are some big guys. Uh, so they swung the bats extremely well. They played uh, very good defense. They're still young enough to move around, like I used to move around. Uh, so it was a lot of fun watching everybody out there. There were a few ladies that were out there that were just. I mean, man, they were they were really good. They were putting everything into it. You had a few of them sliding around the bases, and it just looked kind of painful to me for anybody that was trying to slide on turf out there. But uh, there were there were a lot of people that had a lot of fun out there. Well, thanks for for doing that, Mark, and thanks for joining us here on the, on the mic drop. Really appreciate it. All the best for continued success on as part of the Bally Sports Crew, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again down the road. On behalf of Monica Paul and the Dallas Sports Commission, thanks to our guests, Chuck Carlton, Jim Nill, and Mark McLemore. Thanks to the Mike Drop production team, Chris Amelia, our intern Marcus Carr, and showrunner Tony Fay. Until next time, thanks for listening.